The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. I'm a parent. Last January, I kind of hit a wall with work and life. My kids are so little, three and one, and they both had COVID. Then my wife and I both caught it. I was still trying to work while playing in Canto in a loop, and I was like, how do people do this? And look, I'm pretty lucky by every measure. My colleagues were patient and supportive. But even so, if you've ever had to take care of anyone, kids, parents, a sick spouse, and also keep up your career, you can empathize here. You know that feeling where you're just so tired. You feel like you're letting people around you down at work and at home. This was a problem even before the pandemic, of course, but now it's a crisis. So many caretakers, especially women, have dropped out of the workforce because it's just too much. This week on the eve of Mother's Day, we're devoting an episode to caretaking. Our guest is the social activist Angela Garbus. Her new book is Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. The pandemic shifted the way that Angela thought about mothering her own two daughters. And she asks us to consider what work matters most. Or rather, she instructs us. The work that matters is caring for humans, ourselves and others. And then Angela invites us to reorder our lives around this truth. Here's Angela. So we all have these individual patchwork solutions. Um, And in the pandemic, those went away. And so we were left with this place where um, I was like, huh, this is interesting. Uh, Without care work, (laughs) without people to care for our children, and also in the broader pandemic sense, without people to care for our elderly, without people to care for our growing number of disabled and ill people, um, we don't have a lot. We are lost. Um, And it felt like the infrastructure was kind of falling out for a lot of people. Really, like I was drowning in my care work and drowning in thoughts of care work. So just to fast forward, you know, months of not writing, I had an editor at The Cut who reached out to me because she had heard me say something to the effect of, you know, well, in the fall of 2020, in September 2020, 865,000 women dropped out of the professional workforce. That was in one month. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that that's because they could no longer be care providers, school proctors, online school like administrators, and professional workers with jobs. So they felt their best option was to just leave the paid workforce. And that's a really devastating stat. And that's when we kind of heard like a lot of stories about how the women are not okay, right, in the pandemic. And we don't have a social safety net. We have mothers. So all of this was kind of brewing. And I had an editor who heard me say, when women aren't able to work outside of the home, that directly impacts their relationship to public life. And what happens if millions of women just disappear into the domestic space They disappear out of the professional world and then out of effectively public life for a year or more. 
It was one of the first times that I was able to really write something in the pandemic. And I just kind of let her rip. It was like every bad feeling I'd been having about being relegated to the role of caregiver, um, feeling like I couldn't handle it all. Where was my ambition? It seemed to be sort of dying. And then there was part of me that kind of felt freed by that. <laughs> you know, why is it that I, I, I'm a feminist and somehow I have become dependent as, you know, a, as a brown woman on my white husband's salary? Um, that was really difficult for me. So that piece, it had this sort of viral life of its own. Like Elizabeth Warren tweeted it, um, Melinda Gates tweeted it. And suddenly I realized, oh, like this felt really personal, but I am far from the only one wrestling with this. And I think people might want to hear what I have to say about this. And so I kind of conceived of a book that was about the caregiving history of America and how we came to see it as something that is invisible and undervalued that we really expect for free from women of color. There's a lot to grapple with with that, but I also wanted to kind of double down on the care work that I was doing every day, which yes, was sense deadening and was making me feel claustrophobic and miserable. There was a time in my life where I really enjoyed it. Like I like cooking. I really love taking care. I love taking care of people. Um, and I felt like I couldn't do that. And and when I really thought about it, like the pandemic clarified for me that the only work we humans really have to do is to keep ourselves alive and to keep our people alive. And it was such a clarifying moment for me. Like, obviously, I still have personal ambitions and professional ambitions, but I realized like if I could say at the end of my life that I like took care of myself, which is not that easy to do, um, like my mental health included, and I took care of my spouse and my children felt loved and safe. Um, that's a successful life. And that would be enough. Angela understood there was a moment for this conversation, but she didn't know if it would stay that way for very long. I knew that once schools opened, a lot of that would go away. Right. And that people would think we had solved the healthcare crisis and, you know, the CDC was being like, we don't need to quarantine anymore, just go back to work, right? And the machines of Americans' institutions were pushing us back to life as usual. Like employers wanted us back in the office. And I just felt like the pandemic exposed so much. And while I cannot stop like the extreme machinations of like all of American institutions, um, what I can continue to do is never shut up about what I saw in the pandemic and how it affected my view of care work and what so many women and so many parents saw. And I want to continue to have that conversation. I refused to let that conversation go away. I, I for one, appreciate that. And I'm thinking about that feeling in the summer of 2021, that by the time we got here, the pandemic would be fully in the rearview mirror. And my sort of pessimistic view would be that women would have lost a lot of ground in particular, and parents would have lost a lot of ground that they would not necessarily recoup, but that conversation would move on. Policy wouldn't necessarily keep up and we would just be back to running on the hamster wheel again. But something else has happened, Angela. Instead, as strain after strain reintroduces the virus into our communities, there's much more of a stopping and starting and stopping and starting, which keeps these concerns front and center for those of us with children mm -hmm. uh, at the same time as those of us without children 
can kind of get on with things. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've noticed that. I have seen that. I mean, to a certain extent, yes, there is a feeling that a lot of the world is like going back to the business as usual, schedule as usual. Parents are not in that place. Like, I also have an unvaccinated child that I am still waiting with bated breath for a vaccine for under five, which which causes a lot of anxiety in my life. I actually reject this going back to normal. Like things have been exposed. Like we should not be going back to normal. We know that care is not a value at the center of American institutions. So I want to just right. name that for what it is. I personally don't know exactly how to change all of those things, but I want us to begin to understand that and really think about that. So you know, that was kind of happening. And I was like, okay, it's like, you know, my husband and I are not attorneys. Like he's a union organizer. I'm a freelance writer. Um, but we could see like these sorts of returns happening, but it was not happening for parents with young children. Like we are still very attuned to the virus and all those stops and starts. And parents, this is where I feel like we need to be looking for solidarity, not with this working class of people who are carrying on and have their like nannies rehired. We need to be looking to people who are, um, you know, who maybe never stopped going to work, whose lives were always on the line, who were trying to figure out childcare while also going to to work every day. Like who are the people that couldn't send, that struggled with sending their kids to online school because they maybe they don't have consistent internet access or there's no one to be with them. And so there is this like professional working class that is carrying on. Um, and then there's the rest of us which is the majority of the country who do not hold the majority of wealth in this country. And we are still very much figuring it out and living in a certain <laughs> amount of fear and uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. You so elegantly juxtaposed the pursuit of productivity that capitalism prizes with the pursuit of care as the, as the end goal. Um, that mm. is in many ways the opposite of productivity, but you would argue its own reward. And that was that was a real a framing for me that I want to take forward, thinking about sort of what I'm trying to achieve with my days. Is it productivity or is it or is it something else? And can it be something else? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean I think it is what this, you know, obsession focus on productivity, which is grind culture, which is hustle, which is have a side hustle in addition to your job. We are so focused on those things that um, it's just sort of warped how we regard our time and our lives, right? Every moment has to be filled. Like anything that's not actually productive or producing something or leading to money feels like frivolous, right? Yeah. And I think that... Um, it's kind of ground out our natural inclination to care, like both for ourselves, simple things like taking a long bath, um, can't, got to take a shower because I got to hit the gym. The work of human care and caring for yourself um, and other people can never really be efficiently or perfectly outsourced. Yeah, It's inescapable that you have a body that you're going to like have to change a tampon, that you're going to have to wipe your ass. Like these things are inescapable and they are not gross. They are, they're part of being a person. We think that being a good worker is and oftentimes like denying the needs of our bodies um, and our emotional needs. And I, I'm advocating for a way of, you know, rethinking our think of work. Again, I believe that the only work that really matters is keeping yourself alive, which is harder for um, Black people, which is harder for Asian women than it is for white men and women. 
that's just true. That to me is very admirable work. And so why can't we think of work as being, in my personal belief, and this may sound extreme to some people, but no matter how much you love your job, um, no matter how much you like, you could be fully in and like your job is like fully satisfies your identity and it makes you happy to go to it every day. In the United States, where we do not guarantee healthcare for people, we do not guarantee a floor of income, a basic life, we do not give paid leave, we do not give family leave, work ultimately is a coercive condition of survival. Our health insurance is tied to working. Why is that? Like, why do we accept that? (laughs) I'm all for people having ambition and finding meaning in their work, but care is the real work of human beings. And I would just like us to, I want people to have leisure time to take care of themselves. Like amid mm-hmm. all this hustle and grind, like it, it like unions work to gave us, you know, like eight hours for work, eight hours for rest and like eight hours for what we will. That was the line. That's what unions gave us. And we've drifted so far away from that. It's like even our workouts have to be efficient when we move them into like our post-work hours before we go home and like, have dinner delivered. You know, I just, I want us to slow down. I want us to care about ourselves. Like it feels really good to care about my like broken body. <laughs> it feels really good to care for the ones I love. Angela, um, one of the most striking things that you wrote about in your book for me was your relationship with your pandemic pod. Mm. Looking back on the period of time during the pandemic, the most the most radical thing that happened for me is that we also potted with a family and it reframed the way I thought about what it meant to be in community. Shortly after the pandemic began, the people who lived in the apartment directly next to us who have twin boys, my son's age, knocked on our door and said, hi, we're Aaron and Mike. We know you a little bit. We have a proposition. Our apartment has a backyard. Your apartment has a basement. We're going to make your house into the WeWork. We're going to make our house into the daycare. And we did that for more than a year, Angela. Wow. And going into it, they were strangers to us. Yeah. And we grew to love their children as our own. And when I read specifically about the way that you grew to love these other children in a way that you didn't know beforehand that you had the capacity to. Yes. Um, I was really moved by that. Uh, because this happened for us, for our family, because it was the only way through out of yeah. uh, a certain need. Capitalism and the products of capitalism could no longer buy us out of these problems. Mm-hmm. And the only way out of them was other people. Yeah, You had a similar relationship with the f- a family, probably mm-hmm. different or unique. But what is that relationship like now as we infuse other people and other institutions back into our lives? Yeah, that's a really good question because we're actively thinking about that. Um, so this family, we we knew them. Like they have daughters pretty much exactly the same age as ours. And we had hung out before a little bit here and there. Just like good vibes, pretty chill. Mostly it was a childcare arrangement. And that's really how this started. You know, virtual kindergarten, we'd do play dates after school, they just became similarly, like they just became family to us. Um, and that was a thing that happened over time. It was not a thing I was looking for or asking for. It feels like a great gift. 
And I know that not every pod relationship is like that, but I think it pushed us and also made it possible for us to develop new ideas of community and family, realizing you don't have to be the best of friends with people to really enjoy their presence and and their children's presence with your children, right? We've like gone on trips with them. We have regular meals at our house. Like it is the most easy like communication that I have. Um, but you know, we definitely like have other friends and families that we go on vacation with, and we're like, would we invite them to that? I don't know. Like, I don't know if they would have fun. Like, how would they fit into our social lives again? And that's very much a work in progress. Like. The other day, Becca, my pod mom, my co-mom, as I think of her, we went to a dance performance. We had tickets to go see Bill T. Jones. And afterwards, we were like, I don't want to go home. Like, let's have a drink. It's 10.30 p.m. We are never awake at this time. (laughs) And we went and had a drink. And um, we were like, I know her home intimately. Like, I know when they're out of milk to go downstairs to the basement and find the fridge where the extra milk is, right? Like I have wiped her daughter's ass, like, and I'd never been in public with her. (laughs) I had never been in like a theater. We had never negotiated, what bar would you like to go to? This is to say that like, I don't know exactly like what will happen. I know that I can't live without them. (laughs) Like I just, I know this in this way that is like whatever our relationship ends up being like they will be my friends they will be my family for life even if that time that we spend together dramatically decreases it doesn't decrease the impact they have made in my life and even if they move away like i just feel like we will pick up where we left off they're just like a part of me i so hear that the thing that i miss is needing them we get them and we're we're yeah. in that uh, it's like we're in a similar uncomfortable position where like now like we make plans but someone has to cancel plans because there's a soccer game which there didn't used to be soccer during the pandemic right, and right, someone right, else right. needs to reschedule because there's a work dinner and then it's suddenly been two weeks before when we haven't seen each other and yeah we're used to the day-to-day cadence like yeah. we'll sort all that out we will yeah um but the thing that has gone away and will not come back in the same way is that we don't need community that way. And I feel it missing. I feel Mm. deep. I I feel like I'm grieving it. Yeah. I hear that. That makes so much sense. What I would slightly counter with is that that need doesn't go away. To be a human is to be, to live in a state of needfulness. We never stop needing people. And now it's kind of like, we get to discover who are the other people in our life that we want to need, knowing that that sort of relationship is very special and being more open to cultivating that with other people. We're going to take a quick break here. Now, when we get back, Angela will offer thoughts and advice for the rest of us. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. 
Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. I've heard from so many listeners in these past two years. Their questions range, but there are a few that just keep coming up. Sometimes women write to say that they want to leave their jobs to prioritize caring, but they worry about leaving big jobs in particular. I remember one woman, she was a lawyer, and she asked specifically, am I letting my kids down by dropping out of the workforce? Is it a bad example to them? Here's how Angela thinks about this. I mean, that is like the, what we have been taught as women <laughs> is that we can have it all, right? And that, um, I mean, mainstream feminism for a solid 60 years has been teaching us to find satisfaction outside of the home, right? And to find validation and power there. I will say, you know, it's usually in the form of being like a male in the in the workplace, right? So I think like I am deeply empathetic to this position of like, I it means something to me, right? Like I worked really hard. I don't want to abandon that. But what we have taught less is that we have denigrated the work of care and said like, oh, it's for stay-at-home moms who don't do anything, right? Or it's for like, that's my nanny, that's my housekeeper who are you know, this myth of that's unskilled work so that we use to justify like not paying them very much. I am allergic to advice or saying like, this is what you should do. <laughs> but I think that's a question that most people, most women who are working outside of the home or have any desire to work outside of the home, they're holding that. Like that is the question, you know, and I don't, I don't know what the answer is. And I can tell you, like, for me personally, like, I would lean in more. I don't think it has to be either or. If I were to ask you, Jesse, like, what's the most important, like, the most valuable thing in your life? I don't think you're going to, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to put words into your mouth. Like, <laughs> I suspect, or if I were to ask this woman, like, it's not your house or your car. Like, the best, most meaningful things in your life are, like, <laughs> unquantifiable, like, by money, right? Like they are right. love and care and safety. And I don't want people to feel like they have to choose. I want us to be able to, to feel emotionally whole because I think that also makes us better at the work we do outside of the home. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And when I think of, of what that is, right? For me, that would be love, but love as a verb and the process of love being simply the process of training one's attention fully on something. Mm. I love my writing. I I couldn't thrive or live without my writing. Yeah. And similarly, I love my children. And when I have the opportunity to love them by paying full attention to them, you know, it's a complete gift. Yeah. Um, and navigating a life in which we get to have both. We I would I would counter we actually, many of us, not all of us, it really depends on 
where you sit in our society, but many of us could have more time for both if we, um, if we simply asked for it and demanded it Mm -hmm. and were willing to live a life that allowed for it. Yes. As long as we're talking truth, like I'm, I've been a lot in these, like, and sort of in the clouds of like, these are just things that I want us to think about. And I do, because it takes a mind shift that I, I understand is very difficult for people to make. And on the ground, like when faced with a boss and like justifying things that can be really, that can be challenging. But I think one, you know, collective action and solidarity to be like transparent with your colleagues, like people should be talking about things like pay. That's what I think employers and people in power don't want is people sharing information, feeling in solidarity with each other um, to make demands, right? And to show that you need us to do this work. But I think, yeah, also like, you know, the way paid leave works is a lot of people for family, and this is not just parents, you know, like the reason why women make less money, the gender pay gap exists is because throughout their lives, they will be expected to care for people, whether or not they become a mother, they're going to be expected to care for an aging parent or like a brother who has an accident. That's a that's a responsibility in our country that is carried by women. I think that it is possible to achieve those things and it's easier when you're not doing it alone. So like to feel solidarity with your coworkers for that and also to realize that to have that flexible work place unfortunately in a lot of scenarios will mean that you will likely give something up right yeah. you may give up like a promotion you may give up a position you may give up like being asked to participate in certain things like i think prioritizing care like in this society even though i don't think it should be this way it will cause the loss of like some material resource And I want to be really clear about that. And I think that that's hard for some people, um, depending on their economic situations. But I I guess I would also just encourage you to to think like, okay, so finances might change a little bit, or like my career options might change a little bit, but what would I gain? You don't know yet. You don't know what's on the other side of that and how that might enrich your life and how that might enrich you as a person. And I think that while it is scary, it is less scary if you're putting your neck out alone. And I think you are worth it. Uh, and I think it is worth it to consider exploring it. Well, that brings me to the the second type of, of listener who, who writes to me. An example would be, uh, you know, I'm a single mother with student loans, working in the healthcare profession, working four days a week and I cannot make ends meet and I cannot be present for my child. I'm so tired. How do I prioritize being a parent? I'm a lousy one and I still can't pay my bills. But I'd love for us to think about how we ally with our with our male and female listeners in this, in this position because it's a very real position for a lot of people in our country. Yeah. Um, I just want to say to whoever this person is, like, you are not a lousy parent. You're just not <laughs> like if you are doing the best that you can and that you are writing in and trying to find help, like you are so far from a lousy parent, you are someone who is trying to find a solution. And so I just want to like give you props for that and validate your existence, which is really, really difficult. One thing I would say is like we internalize and personalize all of this because 
it's entirely on us in America. Again, until your child is like six years old, we've just decided we are fine with you having to figure it all out. What this listener's experience are is crushing institutional problems, right? It is not on her. Like it's, it's making her life really, really hard, but it is not her fault. And she, there's no way that she can just solve this. She needs help. <laughs> so I just want to position it that way. If she is able to hire someone to do some childcare, that person, because most childcare workers are mothers themselves, um, maybe that person can bring their child and the child is not lonely, right? The, her child gets to have a companion that they play with. Like, and this is another way I think that Americans really need, and, and a lot of women really need to reckon with the fact that they, they are not so different and their needs are not so different from the people that they hire to care for their children. You know, nannies are women of color, nannies are mothers, childcare providers are mothers. Like who's taking care of their kids? Like imagine a place where like they could, she could bring her child, you know, and they could like have a meal together and it sharing the load. Yeah. I mean, I don't have solutions. These are structural things and they require structural help, you know? So I think to the extent that she could find like, is there a neighbor, right? You know what I mean? Who can watch your kid for a few hours and you could like, you know, when you make soup, you make extra. I mean, these are very small patchwork solutions, but this is, this is what it takes. Well, so that to me is if, if you're looking for a proactive takeaway from your book, that is what I took away from it. And what I hope that our listeners will pay attention to, which is it's not you. These are structural problems that yes. have caught you up if you're trying to parent and it's hard mm -hmm. and there is a path forward and there is hope for a path forward of course, we can lobby for better structures and for our institutions to do better, and we should and we will. But we can also lean into each other because yes. we have untapped capacity. Yes. And um, I don't know. I think that's a really hopeful message. <laughs> I'm glad. I mean, I believe it. I've seen it. That's what I have seen in the pandemic. Well, early on, I was like, the government is not coming to save us. <laughs> I was like, if we survive... And in, I mean, I don't want to deny that like death is a huge presence in the United States and the way we have normalized and not talking about how many people have died is criminal to me. But we are going to survive because we are meant to survive. We are built, many of us are built to survive and we need to talk about this time and we survived because we took care of each other in small and big ways but that's what we do. It's what we humans do. Like we are all tapped and we have limited resources and energy and capacity. Like I know that. And I know that is true. Um, so like, I don't spend a lot of time talking to someone who like, you know, ref say refuses to wear a mask. Um, I don't know how to convince people who don't already believe that you should care about other people. Um, that's not a like argument I'm going to waste my energy on, you know, like I'm going to direct my love and my attention, which, which exists in abundance towards people who need that and towards people who feel that and want to return that. Um, and so I think, yeah, like I'm not, I'm not overwhelming myself with the idea of like sitting down at the Thanksgiving table with my racist uncle to like change his mind. Right. Like that's a, I mean, that's, that's a great thing for white people to do. Right. But I, I really think it's about like, when we have limited resources, like put them where they can count, give them to the people that need them. 
um, and ask for the things that you need in return. That was Angela Garbus. Her new book, Essential Labor, is out May 10th from Harper Wave. This week on Office Hours, I hope you'll join us. We're talking about caregiving. Have you also been parenting through this pandemic? Are you doing elder care? We're going to chat about what that feels like and how we can help each other persevere and what our offices, our employers can do for us to make it all more palatable. Join us for Office Hours on Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. You can find us on the LinkedIn news page or email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Sarah Storm with help from Taisha Henry. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor take care of themselves and others. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll see you next Monday. Thanks for listening.